Welcome to Lead with Less, the podcast for confident professionals with me, your host, Tash Peterson, Certified Leadership and Mindset Coach. This is the podcast for confident professionals that will help you move through overwhelm, burnout and self-doubt by sharing actionable strategies and practical steps that can have an immediate impact for you. With a mix of solo and guest episodes, I will share everything I've learned and applied over the last decade that has enabled me to create an extremely successful HR career and since then a profitable and thriving coaching business, all while blending it with everyday life and motherhood. I've also coached and empowered over 150 clients through one-on-one coaching and group programs to transform their lives and careers using these strategies. They now confidently thrive as their best selves and now I want you to have access to all of the goods too. This is the perfect spot if you're new to your career, a seasoned professional or aspiring into a people leadership role and want to lead with less so you can live and work with more confidence, clarity and energy. Hello, hello, and welcome to this episode of Lead With Less. I have a special guest this week, Lottie Roberts, who is one of my favorite people. Lottie and I met through the Writers and Elephants Emotional Culture Deck Masterclass. It's a resource that I use and that Lottie uses in her work as well. And we've just hit it off and we have been connected ever since. We catch up all the time. And I knew when I started Lead With Less podcast that she was absolutely one of the people that I wanted to talk to. So I wanted to just briefly introduce Lottie before we jump into the episode. Lottie is a forward thinker in the field of emotional culture and well-being at work, mindful mindful leadership and change. With 25 years experience leading and coaching people through large-scale change and transformation programs. During her own leadership journey, Lottie discovered the power of mindfulness to help navigate her own challenges and change in the form of postnatal depression, chronic pain, double hip replacement, and corporate burnout. Through her own experience and further education in the wisdom of emotions, self-compassion, breathwork, yoga, and mindfulness-based practices as a way of attending to the ongoing challenges and pace of modern working life, Lottie instantly saw an opportunity to integrate these teachings into leadership, workplace culture, resilience, and organizational change. Lottie has now founded her own business, Mind You, where she is devoted to helping individuals and workplaces flourish from the inside out through a combination of ancient practices and the latest science and research, as well as her own personal and career experience. Lottie is passionately committed to helping those she works with, building the understanding, capability and resilience to mindfully lead, thrive and navigate through this ever-changing and often unsettling world we find ourselves in. Outside of Mind You, Lottie lives in Wellington with her husband and three sons, aged 8, 12, and 15, her joy boys, as she calls them. A former elite-level distance runner, Lottie now prefers dancing it out to a cheesy pop song in her, around her lounge and hiking the hills as her favorite way to get her heart pounding. Lottie is just amazing. As you can tell by that bio, she has so much under her belt. She has so much experience, so much depth, and has moved through really big challenges like postnatal depression, double hip replacements, changing her whole life from being an elite level athlete to changing to the corporate world. So there is so much juice in this episode. And I know that as you listen, you're going to be able to connect to different parts of her story and take away so much strategies and tools to help you move through life. She is a mother. She's post-corporate She's building her own business. She has so much to share. So I really hope you enjoy this episode. 
Hello, 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 Lottie. It's so nice to have you on the Lead With Less podcast. It's It's been a while since we've chatted, but it's so nice to have you here. Thank you. I love a good podcast chat, so I've been excited to talk to you. And like you say, it's been ages since we caught up, so it's a, it's a good chance to have a good natter. It is, it is. So as you know, the podcast is all about helping people move through overwhelm, burnout and self-doubt and providing practical tools and strategies to help them do that. And you're someone that I've admired for a long time. We met maybe what, three or four years ago through the emotional culture deck, through Writers and Elephants, uh, which we both love and probably you more so because <laughs> since your whole whole career is now based around that. Uh, but yeah, you're someone that I've just really admired. Your story has always been really inspiring. The things that you've moved through, the things that you've navigated, pivoted, all of those things. So I'm really excited to have you here and for you to share your wisdom, learnings and journey with the listeners. So to kick us off, could you please share your story, you know, your personal and career journey and what led you to being the Lottie of today and doing what you do? Okay, I'll try to summarize this because it's like I'm 50 now and it's quite Quite, it's I still quite can't believe that. Honestly, <laughs> it's just so wild. When people see photos of Lottie, you would be shocked. Shocked. Yeah. Although it's funny because it's only since I've turned 50, like before you're 50, I'll go onto my story in a minute, obviously. But before you're 50, you think, you know, I want to look great when I'm 50 and I want people to say you don't look your age. Now I'm 50. It's like, I'm like, if somebody says you look good for 50, I'm like, well, what's 50 supposed to look like? Mm. Oh, that's a whole different conversation. Exactly. And it's got me really thinking about that. It's like, actually, I just want to look good for me and like drop the number. So it's kind of really interesting how like that that shift of, I know somebody's trying to give you a compliment, but there's something in that that is not a compliment around yes. 50. So yeah. it's interesting for me. Um. Anyway, I digress. I will go back to my story. So uh, Lottie Roberts, um, although I was born Charlotte Quinton, is kind of funny. My, my maiden name's Quinton. My name's actually Charlotte, but nobody calls me Charlotte anymore. I'm originally from the UK, which you can probably tell by my accent, but I've lived in New Zealand for 18 years now. Mum to three gorgeous boys, who I call my joy boys. Hasn't always been the case, as we were talking about before we came on, um, but they are now, and I live in Wellington. So what I do now is I actually have a, my own little business called Mind You, which is all around helping kind of individuals and workplaces flourish from the inside out. And there's obviously a lot in, in that. Um, but my journey to working for myself, um, which I never, ever planned to do, it was what I call a beautiful accident, is, has kind of been what's actually got me to do what I do. So I spent 25 years in the corporate world um, working in the space of leadership and change. So my expertise was all around sort of leading big transformation programs. Um, the last job that I did was at Bank of New Zealand. I led a business unit of about 200 people, head of strategic change and transformation. But I got completely burnt out and that's kind of part of my story. So I now have mindfulness as a big center of what I do in getting people to flourish. But my journey of mindfulness came when I found myself, it's around about 12, 13 years when I've asked this, you know, when you say a number and then you keep saying it and you realized actually. It's like 15 years now. <laughs> when I became a mum, that was kind of a really pivotal time to me. So my oldest son was 15 years old now nearly 16. And um, before I was a mum, I would say I was the type of person that was a bit of a control freak. 
liked things to be just so, definitely an overstriver, overachiever. I think anybody that's sharing their story of burnout and overwhelm, self-doubt, I would say there's probably that kind of tendency there. Almost the criteria ticking. Yep. (laughs) And I, you know, was somebody who liked to achieve things. I think a lot of my self-worth was down to ticking boxes in terms of achieving things. And I'd had a lot of success in my career. On top of that, I was also an elite distance runner. So I was an athlete um, and I, before I had kids, I kind of felt everything was in a neat little box. My career was going on a great trajectory. I actually didn't think I could have children, but I ended up getting pregnant just after getting married. And so, you know, I was pregnant. I'd had a really good um, also, you know, career as an, an amateur athlete, I would say, even though they say elite athlete, I wasn't going to the Olympics. And I was very, found myself very fortunate to be pregnant um, and then had uh louis and i think that was kind of my first lesson of letting go and that things are definitely not in a little box however i had a a pretty good ride of motherhood and then i had my second child who is now 12 and i found myself not bouncing back as quickly physically i found it a lot harder having a three-year-old and a newborn baby to just having a newborn baby And um, it just wasn't fun. And then I found I was starting to get, I wanted to get back into competitive running and I ended up physically burnt out and mentally burnt out with postnatal depression. And I always mention this as part of my story because this was kind of a big moment for me in doing the kind of work that I do now, because it was through that journey that I found mindfulness. I, I kind of was at a stage where having had a plan and been this person that had the little boxes, all of a sudden I was told I had a really bad injury to my pelvis that they didn't know if I would run again. Um, I just felt so tired and so, so I don't know, just so lacking at the time and dead. And I ended up in a doctor's, uh, you know, room saying, I just feel so bad. I feel so low. I'm just not enjoying motherhood. And he was like, I think you have postnatal depression and wanted to give me some antidepressants which I actually took the prescription and then Googled breastfeeding and antidepressants and just didn't, I'd have nothing against people taking them. But for me at the time, it was another thing that was driving my anxiety. So I didn't take them, but I knew I couldn't go on like that. And I ended up in, um, was waiting for a physio appointment one day and I saw this this poster on this wall saying, do you live in chronic pain? At the time I was in chronic pain physically from all the injuries and do you also live in kind of mental pain? I was like, yeah, that's me. Eight week mindfulness course. And I was like, that's the one for me. And at the same time, I was also started going to counseling um, because I didn't want to take the antidepressants. And also the counselor had said to me, have you tried mindfulness? Because one of the things they got down to was that I couldn't sit still. Mm -hmm. So this physical fatigue that I had and this mental fatigue, a lot of it came from a kind of addiction to busyness. And the only reason I found that out was she asked me, like, you don't seem to ever sit still. Why don't you sit still? And I was like, well, I just feel guilty. And there's always lots to do. And she's like, well, how often do you feel guilty? And I was like, well, you know, most days. She's like, how often a day? And I was like, "Mm, probably several times a day. She's like, what, every hour? And I was like, yeah. How many times an hour? And I was like, probably several times an hour. And then I went, wow, that's a lot of guilt. And she Mm. went, yes, it is. 
And at that point, I was like, I, I, I think I'm going to go for this, try this mindfulness. There's nothing else. Nobody else is giving me a plan. <laughs> and that's how I found that mindfulness, which is obviously something that I do now as um, part of, you know, what I teach and what I bring to people in the workplace. And I started meditating. I started going, it was great to have this kind of structure of an eight-week course. And it did indeed help me. And in a way that was subtle, but profound, I started noticing Indy, my baby at the time, smiling. I hadn't noticed it smiled. He was mm. seven months old and I hadn't noticed. I started to, it was almost like I describe it as rather than the world being black and white, you start to notice these bits of color. Yeah. It's not like it goes to color, but you start to notice. And um, I was also able to kind of manage my chronic pain. So that's how I came to mindfulness. But I still went back to work. In actual fact, I went back to work earlier than I did with my first because I felt this still this kind of itchiness to doing something and to also claim part of what I thought was my identity. Oh, I feel that. Oh, I feel that deeply. Yeah. So I'd put a lot of like, I guess, coupled a lot of who I was to my career and to being a runner and probably only just starting to couple it to being a mum. So I went back to work and I practiced and that did help me. And I say this because I think people that know me now as a regular practitioner of mindfulness, who um, is very much an ambassador for what it can provide. I don't think it's a silver bullet, but I think it can really help people. I, I kind of want to make clear that my journey in mindfulness has ebbed and flowed. I have fallen off. And part of why I do what I do now is almost to keep me with the practice because we're in a world that we need to be more mindful to actually navigate a lot of the challenges. However, it's pulling us away from being mindful and being present in our lives. So by me doing this as part of my career, it keeps me honest. It keeps me with the practice that helps me. But over that time, I still would go back to some of those things that we do and you're an overachiever and you're comparing yourself and I'll just work a little bit more and oh, I'll just go and exercise even though I'm really tired and like my pelvis is still sore. Yeah, <laughs> totally. So, <laughs> you know, uh, something about me is sometimes it takes me a little bit of a while to get the message, get the lesson. I have this little saying, <laughs> which I even have with my kids. You want to do it the hard way or the easy way? But sometimes the hard way is simply the way. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that's just life is that sometimes it's the only way we really get to learn and embed these really profound lessons. So for me, I, you know, in the corporate world, and I, I do love work. I love, um, you know, it gives me a lot of purpose. However, what I've realized is I've always been drawn to roles that are all about people and about helping people. So change is all around enabling people to navigate kind of this uncertainty, this world we find ourselves in, which is very much what I do now. However, in a corporate setting, I found that as I went up the ladder, which was something I was striving to do um, to get to kind of that executive level, I was actually losing a lot of what I loved, the purpose I loved in my career. And then you get in that environment, particularly in banking, I'm sure it's the same in some, um, very competitive as you go higher up. And I felt it was kind of taking me away from who I was. So I had two young children and I wasn't really present for them. I was busy. I was winning leadership awards and things like that. But I would say some of my behaviors weren't great. Some of the behaviors that I always say, oh, 
these are bad behaviors in the workplace were what I was exhibiting myself, often mm. not with a self-awareness. Competitive, you know, when you're competitive, it's kind of you're in that threat mode. You don't turn up as your best self. And then also very still very physically hard on myself. Um, so I ended up getting an autoimmune, which meant I ended up with a double hip replacement. Gosh. So that's running gone. It ended up being the biggest gift, biggest gift. So as part of having um, that hip replacement, because I'd gone on to have a, a third child and um, I had the hip replacement, double hip replacement when he was about mm, 18 months, something like that. I had to sit. So I had six weeks off work and I had to, but all, although at the time I was like, I'm going to go back early. I'll go back after two weeks because I just stepped into this new role. That was a, a much bigger role. That was the last role I did at BNZ. So it was like a large team that I, or unit that I was running. And, um, but I had to sit, you know, my body forced me to sit. And in that time of sitting, literally being forced by the universe to be still in a world where I'd never, ever been able to be still, I, I think there's truly the practice of mindfulness from a way of not the formal practice of me meditating every day. It's just my day was a whole meditation of sitting with myself and my body and my decisions up to now. And I made the decision then in those six weeks, which were actually ended up being wonderful of saying, I, I need to leave the corporate world, the corporate world. I will never be my best version of me. I will never thrive and be integral with my values while I'm in that system. It's just not going to happen. And so when I got back from uh, the six weeks off, I kind of made a plan. I did things like my yoga teacher training um, and I facilitated my um, ability to leave the corporate world, which was just over five years ago. No plan. I just wanted to actually have three months off because I was pretty, uh, it took me another two years after that, um, making that decision to be in a financial position to do that. But then a few weeks after I left, people had heard I'd left and said, oh, would you like to come in and do something with our leaders because I'd started doing my mindfulness teacher training. And that's kind of how Mind You started. It was just like a beautiful accident. I started going in and doing some sessions with leaders around mindful leadership, navigating change. I started learning about emotional uh, well-being in the workplace. You know, I got my emotional culture deck practitioner and consultancy certification. And yeah, kind of the rest is history. That's mm. as quick as I could do my life story. <laughs> but I really, I like, I love that. And I, and I, one thing I like, I want to kind of connect back to for listeners is, you know, kind of just to recap your life story, you know, you got postnatal depression with your second child. So three years after your first baby. And then it wasn't until, what, 18 months after your third baby. And Bo was six years later, seven years later. Yeah. So I had both. Four years after Indy. Oh, okay. So four years after. So I guess like the the kind of the main point I really wanted to just draw attention to there is it was the start of critical life shifting, you know, with Indy. Mm -hmm. Indy, yeah. You know, but it wasn't until, you know, five, five and a half years later that you actually made, you know, really big intentional shifts to change, right? You know, and I and I guess the point that I want to make there is 
changing your life or or transitioning through things or pivoting things isn't just like a, a click of the finger. It's not like, oh, I have this moment and then I need to change my whole life. It's, oh, I'm recognizing things that are not working, that don't feel good, that, you know, isn't how I want to live my life, but it still could take years for, and I guess that like brings me to my next question, just like kind of bringing back to that point is you did go through that really, I would say like recognizing postnatal depression and starting counseling is a critical shift. Uh, you know, as we talked before we hit record and I definitely think I had some postpartum depression as well. And I saw a counselor too, you know, you started, that was a critical shift. And then, you know, there would have been moments throughout that five and a half years as well that would have continued to be those signals. So like what were some of those continued signals that, that kept flashing that maybe you didn't pay as much attention to that in hindsight, you're like, wow, if I had actually paid a bit more attention to those flashing signals, could I have, or would I have made that shift earlier? Not, you know, not that we want to go back and judge decisions, but just like for some people who might be in that right now, like what are some of the signals that you saw that maybe they are experiencing, but maybe they're not seeing? Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good question. I was reflecting on this before um, around, my answers to this first of all yeah change transforming your life change takes time and I think that's really worth anybody that's listening to this like stick with it um because so often we give up on it because we think it should be this like one-stop shop I don't know if it's been sold to us in self-development books and stuff like that as read this book and then your life will be different it's just a load of rubbish like it takes time, changes a drip, 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 and it and it is hard and it's messy and it's uncomfortable. And it's like that stereotypical little diagram where it's, I, I would say it's like a big ball of wool. It's not like one bit, right? It's like a big ball of wool, but you can pop out what you don't realize. It's actually lots of balls of wool combined together and you can pop out in all different places, not necessarily the other side. Yep. <laughs> Um, and it's tangly and messy. So, yeah, I and I've often asked myself the question, if I had listened then, would, you know, would I be a few, few years ahead of where I'm at? But actually, the answer that I come up with is this was this was the path. Mm-hmm. If I'd have come through it quicker, maybe I wouldn't have had Bo. You know, the other thing I didn't mention is I, my older two sons are from my previous marriage. So it also broke up from my husband at the time just over 10 years ago now and that was part of my journey as well um so you know that was a a big part of possibly some of the discontent I found at the time so in terms of the signs the signs were there was physical signs but there was also emotional signs because the body and the mind are one they are one so they, if there's something in the body it manifests in the mind if there's something in the mind it will manifest in the body so I would say the the thing that came up for me was a feeling of general fatigue, things just being harder than they needed to be all the time, because actually when things fit into place, it's not that they're not hard, but they don't feel harder than they need to be. Mm. They just feel hard without the drag, but it's like hard and there's drag. So there was definitely a fatigue. The fact that I couldn't be still, now I look back as a sign. Anybody that finds it hard to be still or be on their own, there's a lot of signs there. And just a whole feeling of discontent. We look a lot at happiness and sadness. I think there's more profound um, things to be found in contentment versus discontentment. Mm. I think they're undersold to us. 
if there's a feeling of discontentment, I think it doesn't have to be awful, but discontentment and that actually contentment is undersold because that's a wonderful place to be. It's different to happiness. Well, it is. It's like, it's, it's surrendering, it's acceptance. It's the being like, you know, being in life, whereas happiness is yeah. Like that we could, we're not happy all the time because life is that process. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. So the body being tired, the body being injured, you know, people get injured easily, but also just not able to be still and not able to be still ended up over trying, over striving. And again, that's that not just doing something because you want to do it, you're doing it. And then there's that extra effort, which causes the drag. They, those have been my signs and being in a job that should have given me joy, but it didn't. I was doing mm. my ego. I think that's a big thing, seeing that a lot of my decisions back then were from my ego, which is something I really try to keep tamed down now. Yeah. And for people who maybe aren't familiar with the, like the language of ego, it's that's the external sense of self. It's like how people see me, how people view me, you know, it's, we're doing things from the place of how does this make me look, you know? And yeah, from that external place, it's not from the soul of how does this make me feel from that internal perspective. Yeah, from those core beliefs that you have, which for me was, I'm not important, I'm not liked, mm. so I'm I'm not I'm not enough is always kind of it. So, but at the time, I didn't really realize that. So, mm. yeah, I really love that, and those are such great signals because I would say, if I look back at my story, I had all of those moments, you know. Before I went part-time, you know, I broke out in body rashes and that was a manifestation of stress. That was a manifestation of inability to digest food from, you know, stress and lack of sleeping and all of those things. And yeah, and often we're like, oh, it's just because I'm sick. It's like, okay, but why are you sick? Like, where is that coming from? Why are you not recovering? All of those things. Because the body's manifestation is almost the last sign right? Like your body makes you go into pain or makes you break out in something because you haven't listened to anything else. You haven't listened to all of the other simmering little signals of you're tired, you know, there's this or there's that. And it's like, okay, well, I'm just going to make you break out in a rash because maybe then you'll, maybe then you'll notice. Yeah. And that's what it took for me. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and I'm like, oh, you know. And here's the thing, the body always wins. The oh, body does. always wins. I think we, oh, mind over matter. No. The body always wins. And it's interesting with burnout, a little bit like postnatal depression we talked about. You don't necessarily realize you're in it because we think it's like you're completely incapacitated. And actually, you can be quite high functioning still and have postnatal depression. But it's the same with burnout. Like burnout, I realize now that towards the end of my my corporate career, I was completely burnt out which is why I wasn't getting, I wasn't, um, my nervous system was shot. I've got an autoimmune, which is what caused my hips to break down. Um, I couldn't be still, all of that. And I call burnout a citizen's arrest by your body. That's mm. what burnout is. It's a mm. citizen's arrest by your body because you've just thought, no, I'm not listening to you. I'm bigger than you. I can keep going. And then the body goes, ha, 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 ha. let me tell you something. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I love that I also just really want to 
you know, go back again to the point around contentment and discontentment, because this is actually something that I've been talking a lot about with a client of mine as she was, you know, really pursuing the next thing because that was happiness and that was joy. And rather than like, actually, how can I be more content in my life, just in the being and, and how would, yeah, how would, I guess you describe now, like, what are the things that bring you contentment or what is, what is contentment look like like when people are thinking like okay well how can I be a bit more content you know you know what would be the things that I may be seeing or feeling or experiencing that would tell me whether I'm content or discontent because as you say there are undersold things or there are things that aren't emphasized enough we talk about sadness and anger or joy and happiness what would be some of those things that we would see or feel when we're when we're either content or discontent Mm. Well, I can only talk from my experience of it because it will possibly manifest differently in other people. But for me, it's like really noticing little things. Like I was just walking, I had Pilates this morning and I was just walking back from Pilates and it's actually an overcast day today, but it's quite still. And I walked past the walk by the um, waterfront and there was just something about wasn't the way the water was quite black and just rippling. And I'm just like, oh, I really like the light on the water today. Like noticing something like that. Like I wouldn't notice something like that back in the day. I, I get it. I just get a lot of contentment by what's around me. I mean, and as a parent, I, we talked before we started recording, but back when my five, six years ago, I loved my children. I was happy I had my children but they were, they were depleting for me. They mm. were draining my energy. I, I felt, you know, they were another thing on my checklist, like take the kids to the playground today. It was a checklist thing to do. It wasn't something I was getting joy out of or take them for an ice cream or do, it was just, they were just another thing on my to-do list. I can honestly say, hand on heart, my kids are my biggest source of contentment and joy like just being with them, hanging out with them, picking them up from school and just having a conversation with them in the car means so much to me. Like, I just love it. I used to like think, oh, who could look after my kids so we can have a, I can have a week away with my husband. Now I, I, we're going away on a family holiday in a few weeks and I'm so excited that all three of my boys are coming and the things we're going to do. And, you know, it's, it's going to be really exciting for them. Also, another thing I've noticed as well is just feeling so much more at peace in my body. My body, I've had a complicated relationship with my body over my life. I think, you know, running was a way of keeping my weight down. I did a bit of fitness modeling as well when I was younger. And um, I, I have a real respect and love for my body that I never had before. And it was probably a source again. It all comes down to things that nourish and drain. And I just feel a lot of the things in my life now are things that nourish me more than deplete or drain me. And so I think that's what contentment is. It's not that we're doing flashy things all the time. Some, you know, people say to you, well, are you doing anything nice at the weekend? My doing something nice is just hanging around at home with mm. my kids, watching a movie. <laughs> Um, you know, it's very simple. So I think it's enjoyment in the simple things and having a relationship with yourself that's no longer a battlefield, which mm. I have respect and fondness for myself. My journey, like self-compassion is a big part of my practices and what I do. And I actually quite like myself now. And I realized that poor lim limiting core belief of I am not liked actually started with me. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. They they generally do, don't they? Yeah. 
And if nobody likes me now, well, you know, that's about them. That's not about me. As long as I feel I'm showing up in a way in the world where I'm, you know, showing good behaviors and and my behaviors are integral with my values and what's important and I'm respectful to people. If someone doesn't like me, that's about them. That's not about me. And so, yeah, it's it's all those things. Life just not being a battlefield, I think, is almost in itself a source of contentment. It's just yeah. ease. I really love that. And I think I love the most when you said it's a sense of peace in yourself and your life. And I think this is, you know, this is actually this the signs of discontentment, right? It's like, it's the next thing. Like, oh, maybe if I just get the next thing, then I'll feel happy. Or maybe if I just get the next thing, life will be better. If I just, you know, yes, we need basic needs to be met. And I, you know, that's what... Um, I don't can't remember what it was called, but you know they say like minimum salary is like eighty thousand dollars, and anything above that actually creates diminishing returns because you know it no longer actually generates happiness. Like once your needs are met, everything above that, you know, it's just another striving thing. But like, yeah, it's you know some of the signals of discontentment is like, are you constantly just going for the next thing, hoping that changes everything, yeah. you know, versus actually, yes, there's you know, and I and I sorry, I'm kind of going all over the place here, but maybe just a point here that I want to make is contentment doesn't mean that we don't want to do anything else or that we don't want to improve aspects of self or that we don't want to be working on the next thing. That's not what it means. It doesn't mean like, oh, we just become stagnant. We do nothing. It is, but it is about finding the joy, as you say, in the, in, in the being as it is now and not making not making that contentment of joy conditional on the next thing so that if the next thing doesn't come it means we're not happy yeah or if it doesn't come it means you know and this is something I've actually had to learn in motherhood of like surrendering and acceptance and contentment in being in this process because it's like oh you know maybe once Jake's older then things will be easier like maybe when you know he's older or he's doing this then we you know I can be happier as a mom where it's like, well, no, because as we said before we had recorded, it's like, it's the next challenge. Like, yeah, one thing gets easier, but then another thing becomes more challenging because it's like another aspect of their personality or their development or whatever it might be. So it's like, how can I actually find the joy in being a mom right now? You know, but also going like, oh, like I do hope this changes because, you know, I'm human, but also I can find contentment and joy without making the next thing conditional on that happening. Which is why the practice of mindfulness is so powerful because I think a lot of people misinterpret mindfulness as just being calm. Mindfulness mm. is about being with the nature of reality, which ebbs and flows. I read mm. something over the weekend I really liked. It's like life is like a heartbeat and a heartbeat goes up and it goes down. It goes up and it goes down. As soon as it flatlines, you're dead. Mm. So it's and that's life. Like it has these ebbs and these flows. It has moments of challenge. And I want to be really clear that as much as I have a life that I really love and I feel incredibly fortunate. I one, I don't earn anywhere near as much as I used to. Mm -hmm. Same here. So if I couple success to earning a salary, don't have that. Um, I don't have some big team under me. I don't have that kind of status. You know, I call myself the chief everything officer. I've got a couple of people that help me in my business, but that's about it. Um, so, but what has really driven, you know, if I think about coming back to this mindfulness, it's allowed me to be with moments of challenge and not let that trigger me into some of those, um, you know, trigger the limiting beliefs that I have or this sense that um, I've done something wrong or, you know, um, add to the resistance that's there, make 
the drag, make life harder. But when life is good, really appreciate it as well and be driven more by my, my intrinsic values rather than extrinsic. We're in a world that's trying to tell us to look a certain way. This is what success looks like. This is what you should be, do, have, all of that. And it's overwhelming. And all of that takes us away from this very profound inner knowing that we have that is my inner knowing is different to your inner knowing Tash. Mm -hmm. it's like really taking you away from your heart so I kind of really feel like what all of this work that I've done and continues like I still go to counseling now it, con it continues is this ability to be with myself and come home come home to that knowing you know we rely so much on somebody else's advice what someone else is telling us well actually you know what what feels right in your heart like sometimes I'll ask myself a question and literally lay my hand on my heart and ask myself that question and see what comes up and maybe it doesn't come up initially but it'll come up but that's again it's like being with yourself and why that's so important to be as un uncomplicated as it can possibly be mm. but that's a practice you know we also we are conditioned to move away from that like children, toddlers, babies are very much in that. They know exactly what they want. They will throw a bloody tantrum if they don't get it. They will make it known if you are making them do something that they don't want to do. But, you know, and then when they go to school and they do it, that's conditioned out of them. It's like, no, you will conform. You will follow the rules. You will do this, you know, and we over time lose that sense of connection with self. We lose that sense. And this is why people say like, I don't have an inner voice. It's like, you do. It's silence, though. It's turned all the way down. It's probably on mute. You know, so it's like the practice of, yeah, asking yourself, coming back. And I love how you described it of like coming home. Like home is where you are always. So is that home comfortable? Mm. Is that home a home you love being with? Is that home that you, is that home one that has a good energy? Is that home one that truly represents the way that you want to be and the and you know the way that you want to feel? And I love how you talked about you know, leaving the corporate world because you knew that being in that environment wasn't going to allow you to show up the way that you, or not necessarily allow, but it wasn't an environment that you were going to show up as your best. And and I think one thing I want to say here is the message isn't everyone needs to leave corporate because no. it, you know, it means that no one is. It's because I know some people who absolutely thrive in corporate because they are in environments that do truly bring out their best. It's as long as you know who your best is or who your best is day to day, you know, and that's not necessarily going to be exactly the same every day, especially for women and our hormonal cycles and everything that goes with that. Uh, but that self-awareness of who am I, who do I want to be, how do I want to feel? And this is where the emotional culture deck becomes really beautiful and powerful as an emotional awareness too. And I'll add that into the show notes as well. Uh, yeah, is really kind of bringing awareness to who are you because unless we know who that is or at least we're connected to that very rarely will we find contentment very rarely will we find that place of being and enjoy being there and that's the work to really start to understand yourself so you know a, a really profound question is what is the environment I need to be able to thrive what does that look like for me for me I all of a sudden came to the conclusion after all that time that the reason I always felt that way and that I was always so busy and always overstriving is that environment was actually feeding a lot of the, the worst parts of me. And for me, I know as much as I have all these wonderful practices in place, if I was to go back into an executive leadership role, 
I would not be able to thrive. That's me because that's probably not the role I'm meant to be in. The role I'm in now, and, you know, I want to be present as a mum. I want to have space myself. I've realized autonomy and freedom are like one of my number one things I need to feel. And so for me, like I have clear boundaries around work. I work part time. I say no a lot. Um, and I never take a gig or a client that I feel is I'm not going to be able to work because it's going to it's either they're not they don't match my values it's not doesn't just doesn't feel right I always ask myself does this person feel right to work with so yeah absolutely but for some people they are able to thrive in that environment so you ask yourself what's the environment what kind of environment enables me to thrive what does that look like maybe think back to times in your career when you have what have been the people around you what's been the kind of working practices what have been your hours and then look at how you set that up for yourself However, if you answer, I never have, then maybe you're like me. Maybe you're in the wrong environment and you do need to change career. And that takes so much courage. And I know a, a lot of people will say to me, oh, you're doing like my dream role. Um, yet they're very attached to a certain salary or a certain mm. position. And I'm like, well, you have to let that stuff go. Um, one of the attitudes of mindfulness is letting go. And I think that ability to let go and surrender, which you need to as a mother, uh, so this is why the work starts at home, starting to mm. really understand yourself when you're triggered, when you're not your best self and when you are. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. And that actually comes to, you know, sharing three to five most pivotal things that you would share with people to do or, you know, or maybe three to five simple starters that people could start with. So I really love that one around, you know, just asking yourself, like, what environment brings out the best in me uh you know on another episode Emma you know says it's like what when I'm giving my best what is the energy that I'm that people receive from me you know another powerful question so really love that as a starter question you know what environment helps me to be my best mindfulness is another practice that you've spoken about numerous times like what would be a starter for people who are like oh but I can't meditate or like I don't want to meditate or I don't have time which is like the one thing that I will literally smack people over the head with with a brick <laughs> when they're spending half an hour to an hour on Instagram every day you know like what would you say to the people to start like making mindfulness like super super simple where it will take you longer to talk yourself out of doing it than to yeah. just do it so it's interesting because even a felt sense of being time poor actually increases your stress by up to 40 percent Mm. just that felt sense um so i what i do with mindfulness because it's probably one of the biggest things that comes on the courses that i do you know a lot of people are really stressed out that's why they're there i will talk about minimal viable practice what's your minimal viable practice to make it habit because i've got this background in change it's kind of really helped me to get people to really think about their habits and changing habits takes time so say what's your minimal viable practice even if it's one minute a day could you meditate for one minute a day and so minimal viable practice um, and also note that when you're meditating I think we have we've kind of grouped anything that's to do with self-care and practices that it should feel pleasant most of the time when I meditate it does not feel pleasant <laughs> I see the all the shit come up in my mind I'm like, oh my goodness, what's in there today? So it's literally like taking the lid off. Something that's a bit crazy in there. So um, I think decoupling or uncoupling this belief that meditation should be pleasant. I talk about, I, I kind of liken it to flossing or brushing your teeth. 
Mm. We don't necessarily look forward to brushing our teeth or flossing our teeth every day. Um, but we do it because we know it helps our dental health. We know it. We've, it's been proven. Okay. But for some reason, like we aren't willing to put a practice in place that might still be a bit boring because we have faith that it helps our mental health. And so whether you call it meditation or whether you call it setting the timer on your phone to five minutes, two minutes, 10 minutes, whatever can work, and just watching your mind for that amount of time. Because I think we've got this thing that it needs to be harps and unicorns and rainbows. We're actually or quiet, that it has to be like quiet. Yeah. I, I literally yeah, try to let, when you're a mum, let go of the fact that you're going to get perfect conditions, right? <laughs> so that would be another thing, letting go. Other practices, though, that I was thinking about that really helped me, we talked about like working, you know, that self-awareness, working on a relationship with yourself, self-compassion is a big one. Um, for me, space, space is my super power. So I will crowbar space into my day, um, which means I say no a lot. And then I've also put around um, saying no a lot. Uh, boundaries are massive for me. I say no a lot and go, and actually making the practice of saying no something that is um, like a practice in itself. Again, you're getting comfortable with something that's uncomfortable. Something that's really practical that I recommend people to do that can be quite, um, I get people to do this on my mindfulness course, is go through a typical day and list everything down as best you can that's in a typical day and then place an N or a D next to it based on whether it's nourishing or draining. This is a completely different way of looking at your time. And what often happens is you might have a couple of ends at the start of the day or the end of the day, but you notice there's just Ds all the time. Mm. So first of all, look and see if you could put a few ends in. But another thing is what is the attitude that you're bringing to it that might be making it a D, a depleting or draining task? So, for example, reading a story at night could be, oh, God, I just want to sit in front of Netflix. I don't want to read a story for my kids at night. Or you can actually change your attitude to make it more nourishing. So... It's like, oh, this is a moment of connection, you know, yeah. that I've been at work all day. They've been at daycare. This is the five minutes that it can just be them and I, you know, yeah. and yeah. And then I can get to Netflix once, you know, after that, like, you know, it's not a, it's not an end the war. It's do this and then that. Yeah. You'll be surprised at how many, I talk about mindfulness confetti. There's opportunities in our day to sprinkle in mindfulness or nourishing practices. Basically anytime you cue or wait for something is an opportunity mm. to take a breath, to feel your feet on the ground. How often are we in cues? And also starting to bring attention when you're rushing because rushing is a huge load on your nervous system. If ever, I literally have a practice is notice when I'm rushing. And as soon as I notice when I'm rushing, I slow down and I focus on my breath because rushing never gets you anything. What do you mean? It gets me there faster. Uh, and and then you're discombobulated <laughs> and not present. And you takes you like five minutes to really get in the meeting. So I'm like, it literally does not gain anything rushing. We, it's a little bit like multitasking. We think it gains oh, yeah. stuff and actually it puts more load on us. So there are a few things there. I don't know. Yeah, I love that. No, they are amazing. And this, you know, this is that rushing one. It's the people who are like, I'll just work an extra five hours because then I'll get more done. It's like, that five hours are probably the worst work that you'll do because that is energy you actually don't have to do the five hours. That's the five hours you actually needed for the rest of your life outside of work. So yeah, it's again, it's that diminishing returns. You know, it's like, 
and I mean, parenting, flipping heck, I'm going to turn into one of those people that turns everything into parenting, but it's you at the moment. So it makes sense. <laughs> but you know, it's like watching Jake, like learn something or like learning to put like a puzzle piece and you're like, oh my God, like it's the most frustrating thing. It's like, just put it in this way. But you know, it's like, again, like mindfulness moment of like, he's not frustrated he's just playing with his puzzle he'll figure it out and it's like why why am i impatient why why is this bothering me what like why is this why is this relevant to my life of getting upset about it when i'm like why can't i just watch him like wh where are we going nowhere but there's the insight there's the insight right there rather than it be a, a moment of frustration it could be a moment of curiosity mm. I, I used to, like when i used to go out for walks with my kids they either run off or they drag their heels because they're not walking to the pace I think they should. Now mm. I've got this thing which is actually part of my mind practice. When we go out, we we go out and we kind of make sure it's not like we've got to be somewhere at a certain time, but the walking to a cafe or the walking somewhere is part of it. So they might stop, they might talk, and I I surrender to that. And once I started surrendering to that, I realized I really liked ambling. Ambling mm. is really pleasant. I never liked ambling before. The capitalist world is not made for ambling. Right. And there's the problem right there. So yeah. you kind of need to be a bit of a rebel to the system. Mm. I love being a rebel. I think that's, you know, this autonomy thing. And something that I will also say to myself is having been someone who's always been incredibly disciplined my whole life as a former athlete and um, fitness model, very disciplined was my superpower. But the word discipline means to be a disciple. So once mm. I heard that, be a disciple to myself, I bring this aspect of what I call tender discipline. So that's very different. So how am I bringing tender discipline to my world today? Might be, even though I haven't got to the end of my to-do list, I'm going to take a break. I'm going to build a space in. I'm going to say no. No is a tender discipline practice. Mm. When I get something wrong, I'm going to just use it as an opportunity to break, to notice my inner critic and bring self-compassion. So that's been something else. And like I say, these are not things that have happened overnight. I have challenges. I suffer from chronic pain, um, which still, you know, I never know when it's going to hit and it's really debilitating when it does. I pretty much can't leave the house. And so I think it's easy to look from the outside and think, think my world is a box of fluffies, but I have to bring this to my life on the daily and you know i'm in perimenopause now that's a whole new <laughs> show no, I, I am going to do some episodes on that for sure <laughs> um which means sometimes i'll notice myself being having really low mood really low mood and i'll know that there's nothing causing that other than my hormones and i have to just be with it and be kind and be gentle and listen to what i need in that moment so um just because you have all these practices and life is good and I'm content and I'm really in a good place in my life doesn't mean that I have days that are shitty. I do. And I think that comes back to the point you were saying about mindset of is is this draining thing because it's genuinely draining or is the way that I'm approaching it or coming to it or being with it what is actually draining? And this is, you know, mindset you know, our perspective, the way we see the world, you know, all of those things, that's a practice. And I think that's the mindset piece we need to actually bring to this and to all of the strategies that you've shared here is, and this is what I say to my clients all the time. It's like, you haven't come to this point because of one thing you did one time. Mm -hmm. You've come to this point because of 
many moments, many things that your brain has turned into habits, turned into patterns that you just did unconsciously. Maybe some conscious and you're like, oh, I know I don't need to do, I shouldn't do that. But then you still did it anyway, because (laughs) the brain loves to just take the easy way out. Uh, You know, but again, it's like to rewrite this, to repattern, to shift our life into a different place or to shift ourselves into a different place. It takes time. It takes practice. There'll be days where it feels so easy and easeful and you're like, oh my God, I've nailed it. My mindset's amazing. You know, I'll have like a week of motherhood where I'm like, I can do this. And then you have a day where you're like, this is the worst thing ever. Um, But on those hard days, it's those are the days where you show up and you do it again. That's the pivotal rewiring moment. That's the practice. On the days where you don't want to do it is the day where it actually really shifts. You know, the easy days are the easy days. Yeah. And it's interesting because, you know, again, coming down to barriers to practice, barriers to practice and mindfulness. Well, one of them is, well, it's really hard. I can't sit still. Well, there's insight in that. Um, Just a quick story around like going to self-compassion. There's a practice in mindfulness called loving kindness. And when I initially did the the course um, all those years ago, that eight-week course, it was at the time, it was, you, you actually didn't have an app, you had like CDs. And so they'd give you CDs of the practices and, you know, there's like body scan, things like that. I was all up with those, fine. And then they gave me this this kindness, um, loving kindness practice. And um, I listened to it and I was like, no way, I hate this one. This one's awful. No, I'm not doing this one. So I took the CD back because I was like, I don't want to keep it if I'm not going to use it. And I gave it to the teacher and I said, I like the other ones, but this one's not for me. So I just thought I'd give this back. And she's like, no, you keep it and keep trying. And it was really interesting because then later on, like I go on a silent retreat every year and my first silent retreat, about six years ago, I remember sitting there. I mean, from somebody who was always busy, there I am on a seven day silent retreat, sitting there with like nothing to stimulate me and, you know, watching fantails play for half an hour. And all of a sudden I had this moment where I felt the sun on my face and it brought back a really beautiful memory of when I used to go in the cornfields near my mum and dad and hide there because I'm I'm the oldest of four and they were always getting me to do chores. And, you know, that's why I couldn't sit still, I've learned, because I was lazy if I sat still. And I remembered this memory and then all of a sudden I was like, this is a really pleasant memory. And all of a sudden I was like, that's probably, this is probably the first time since then that I've been able to sit doing nothing and actually really enjoy it. And then I was like, this is the kindest thing I have done for myself since I was what, 11 or 12 years old. When I, wow. That was the last time I was able to actually revel and savor doing nothing. And I was like, that's why I couldn't do the loving kindness practice mm-hmm. because I find it so hard to do you know, be kind to myself. So I think one finding out, you know, where do you find these things, these areas that are hard, that are unpleasant, including being kind to yourself. There's so much work there. Oh, and one of them also could be sitting and resting. Like resting has been another thing that I just, I couldn't do. I was never taught to rest. I was, you kids are not taught to renew. They're not taught to rest. We talk a lot about stress is a bad thing. Stress isn't bad. Stress without rest is bad. But stress with rest. Stress is useful if it's used if it's used properly. Yeah. Stress, rest. Stress, rest. That's how that's the heartbeat, right? Mm. That's the heartbeat. We should of make life. that model. We should make that a model. <laughs> and you know, uh, stress, rest, stress, rest. And when I'm delivering, I deliver these like multi-week mindfulness kind of based workplace courses. The first week, it's like, when did you 
ever in your whole career and education learn to rest as a skill. And it's a skill. You've got, mm. we've got to, because everything we're taught from the moment we start school does not take us in that direction. Yeah. So being a rebel again, you have to teach yourself and it will feel so hard when you start. I have no problem resting now. I got that mm. down pat. And I yeah, love same here. <laughs> what I do get triggered by is somebody tries to make me put their shit on me when I'm mm. resting. My husband's a bit of a busybody and he'll be like, you know, huffing and puffing. And I'm like, I will help later on, but I'm having a rest right now. But I'm just saying that because if you're getting resentful for me having a rest, that's your shit, not mine. Yeah. Take that outside, please. This is a rest zone and I don't need your energy in here. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but he's doing much better on the rest now as well. That's been a journey for him. Oh, I love that. And yeah, I just, I love everything you said. And there's so many pockets of things that I just, I want to go down the rabbit hole, but I'm also mindful of time. So we'll have to probably do, <laughs> probably do more episodes. But thank you so much. That was amazing. You've shared some really great simple starter strategies and we will yeah put some we'll put that into the show notes as well just where people can go to hear those so I have some staple questions some quick fire questions that I ask all my guests at the end so I'd love to hear from you what is your number one energy filling practice that you do consistently something that really boosts my energy um is dancing I love dancing anything with music and and laughing like my really big jokey household my kids tell a lot of jokes we do we try to sit around the dinner table together saying jokes and things like that so yeah dancing or anything that just gets me laughing I love that amazing what's one mindset reminder you focus on to boost your confidence yeah there's actually like two little phrases I say to myself one is you're doing the best you can Mm. um and I think that's really because we can you know that even that inner critic but um another one is a little from a little practice where um it's you kind of imagine the person that loves you the most um saying something to you when you're in a moment of pain or discomfort or criticism and then you write it down and mine is I'm here for you I love you what do you need which is oh. what my husband would say so that's mine and I have it on post-its all around the house so when I notice a moment of difficulty, a moment of self-criticism. I say, I'm here for you. I love you. What do you need? Oh, I love that. And that again comes back to you being, you being home with yourself and you being that rescuer for yourself, not hoping someone else does it for you, which I really love. So yeah, being that, that personal confidence builder for yeah. yourself, which I really love. And last one is what's one boundary that you uphold that supports you to be your best? For me, it's, um, I say no a lot. It was hard, this one, say no a lot, working with the, which I'm working with the right clients. I don't, I try not to ever go over 30 hours a week. That's my limit. Yeah, perfect. And this comes back to, you know, people always say like, oh, health is important to me or family is important to me. It's like, okay, are the decisions you're making proving that that's what's important? Yeah. Is that validating what's what's important? Yeah. And if I wobble, you know, sometimes we can wobble or there's a really great opportunity and maybe I'll go, well, it will mean I do work on a Friday this week. I'll take an extra day off. But one of the things that really helps me to stay true to that is I remember me at my, some of my lowest points and mm. I never want to go back there. And if you've been somebody who has an overstriver and, uh, you know, an overachiever, it's almost like achievement and trying to going with your ego is almost like, um, the crack cocaine to a drug addict or the mm. alcoholic drink to which is uh 
another reason why like every time I say no is that saying no to it um and and for me why I don't put myself back in a full-time work role in the corporate world because that would be me working in a bar kind mm. of thing. so um I just rem- remind myself of where I was and where I am and I never want to go back there yeah, I love that. One thing that Kyle, my husband, and I always say to each other is you you can never unknow what you know. So like you can never, now that you're in this place of feeling content, joy, healthy, n- not to say without challenge, you can never unknow this state now. And so it's about bringing that and using that to to be an empowering thing of like, but I know what it feels like to be like this. Do I want to go back to when I wasn't feeling like this and kind of using that as a as an amazing yeah, motivator to 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 stay disciplined to yourself to stay a disciple to yourself which I really love that I wrote that down um yeah really love that thank you so much those were amazing honestly Lottie such an amazing conversation I love talking to you I know we don't do it enough but we're always in each other's spheres on the social so I know that we're always keeping an eye on on what each other are doing um but how can people get in touch with you uh, so my website is um, mindyou.co.nz. So take a look at that. It's got um, all of my offerings. I'm probably most active on LinkedIn in terms of kind of my work. I do, I am on Instagram as well as lolly.roberts. I I find it too exhausting, I'll be honest, to have like a Mind You page and a mm-hmm. and Twitter. And so literally it's just me on Instagram. So I share a bit about my family and a bit about my work. It's a bit of a smorgasbord because I just find it like too much. Oh, to do. I'm the same though, but that's you being a whole person, right? So yeah, amazing. And we'll pop those into the show notes as well of how people can connect with you. And we will also just pop the additional things that we talked about, which is the emotional culture deck. So through Writers and Elephants, we'll pop that in there as well for people to have a check out as well. Uh, So thank you so much again. If you have enjoyed this episode, please get in touch with either Lottie or myself and let us know. If there's anything that you would love to hear again from Lottie, so if there's anything additional that you would love to expand expand on or want me to ask her more about, then please let me know as well. And I'm sure she would love to come back on at some point again to have another big yarn with me thank you so much Lottie and thank you so much everyone for listening thank you for listening to this episode of lead with less the podcast for confident professionals with me Tash Peterson if you enjoy the show please subscribe and take a moment to leave a review on iTunes as a thank you each month one lucky reviewer will get a 45 minute one-to-one coaching session with me where you will get the tools and strategies to lead with less burnout overwhelm and self-doubt and if you know anyone who could benefit from listening to the show then please do share this with them and help me reach as many confident professionals as possible